It was my first day on the job as an allied healthcare professional. Now, the white lab coat, it gives us all the way, right? The really crisp white lab coat. But I, I didn't even need that because naivety was all over my face as I hit the wards, Walla Walla General Hospital a few years ago, quite a few years ago. I can confess to you today, every chart I read, I pretty much didn't understand. Each patient I needed to take care of, I didn't have the big picture, but I smiled a lot, and I thought, this should get me some authority. I just smiled my way through the ward and the nurse's station and right on into a room. Actually, the first room I came to, I was supposed to attend to a patient. The smell was so unfamiliar and so obnoxious all at the same time, I just didn't go into the room. I didn't go in the morning, I didn't go in the afternoon, I didn't go all day. I didn't know what to do with that. The second room, full of opinion and conviction. A gentleman who'd come out of cardiothoracic surgery a few days previous, uh, four vessels bypassed, I believe. I walked into the room, and his first, the first thing out of his mouth to me was, can you please explain what this is on my plate? And he begins poking his plate with a fork. It's his lunch. He's poking with his fork, and he picks up this specimen. What is this? He begins to wiggle it around in the air. He said, it is a veggie cutlet, sir. <laughs> you think I'm going to get well eating this? He said, you know what I need? I need a steak. He said, look at you. You need a steak. <laughs> Walked over to the side of his bed. He pulled up my lab coat. This is white skin, I know. You just need a steak, girl. How old are you? He asked me. Not really, not really the best time to proceed, but he needed a, a diet instruction. Low fat, low cholesterol, high fiber, weight reducing diet before he could go home. I got all done with this instruction with this patient, and he said to me on my way out the door, if I have to eat like that, I think I'd rather have another heart attack. Really? That was the second room. Third room. Third room, the door's propped open. Just a few inches, I knock on the door, and I hear a yell from inside. It's a young adult male. He has survived a motorcycle accident. He collided with a two-ton truck. He's been pretty beat up. He's got bandages. He's got trapeze traction all around his room. I stick my head in. He yells, come on in. I take a few steps in the door, and I see he's laying absolutely naked on the bed. <laughs> we do not train for this in nutrition and dietetics. <laughs> we take anatomy, but we do not train for this. He's waiting for the nurse to come and give him a bath. I said, you know, I'm going to come back later. I turned and just started slinking out of the room. He said, come on in. Bring some nurses with you. Come one, come all. I went back to my office that morning and thought to myself, this is the healing arts? This is the career I prepared for? Yes, these are the healing arts. These are the careers you're preparing for. And to tell you the truth, I know no, of no other academic group like those preparing for the healing arts who are rushing into their future to secure these jobs and begin doing the work you're training to do. 
I know of no other students who carry the academic loads that you carry, who are sequestered, who are required to submerse themselves in focus, to master the content that you have to focus, to one day get these careers in the healing arts, the kind of submersion and focus it takes to be a student at Loma Linda University. You're all to be applauded, by the way. But you heard from Ruthita Fike this morning, it doesn't end when the study ends, because as she testified this morning, then we take these careers in the healing arts and we realize that the focus and the submersion continues. So the people who care about you here at your university plan weeks like this. So we will ask the questions that get lost as you're so frantic rushing into the future. What does a soul do to survive in the wellness work? What does a soul do for equilibrium? I can tell you what we won't be talking about this week. I can tell you we won't be talking about time management. I can, we won't be talking about how you balance all of these things, how we all balance in our lives, our work and our careers and our families and our, our, our hopes for our careers in the future and our community and politics and global interests. I tell you right now, we won't be talking about how in the world do we bring perfect balance to these things. Equilibrium is a conversation about competing forces in our lives. We will talk about competing forces, those forces that throw us into disequilibrium in particular. And you would not be surprised to hear me suggest this morning that a solution to disequilibrium is Jesus. You would not be surprised studying on this campus to hear Jesus brings us equilibrium. But I would like to ask what we mean when we say this. What we mean when we say we need a Jesus-centered and a Jesus-focused and a Christ-centered life because it's very popular language for Christians in the faith community and even on your campus. Christ-centered values emerge in all of your mission statements in your various schools and for this institution. What do we mean when we say we're going to have a Christ-centered life? You find this language everywhere in Christian community. We can have, we study the history of the world. There's something called a Christ-centered worldview people speak about. That's one way we use Christ-centered. You hear Christ-centered language for churches. We, we want Christ-centered churches where we can have Christ-centered worship like what Chris and Casey just did where, where we'll, we'll meet Christ-centered people. We'll be in Christ-centered Bible studies together. That's a good thing we say. Christ-centered Bible study will go on Christ-centered mission trips. That's good. That's where you meet the right people on mission trips. Because then we'll form Christ-centered relationships and Christ-centered marriages. And, and then we'll bring children into the home. And when we have children, we'll be looking for Christ-centered schools and Christ-centered teachers. Did you know your children can study with a Christ-centered math workbook? Who knows what that is? <laughs> Aristotle and Plato would say just a book full of the number seven, right? What's Christ-centered about math? What's Christ-centered about phonics? Look at this one. Oh, you can do phonics too. Christ-centered phonics and math, and then we grow old, and we look for facilities for our grandmas and our grandpas. We want Christ-centered hospice and home health care, Christ-centered medical centers. 
Christ-centered long-term care options for when our loved ones die. We want Christ-centered athletes, by the way, one won a big victory yesterday. It's popular to be Christ-centered again. Whatever this means, we want Christ-centered athletes. You can belong in a Christ-centered biker club if you want, or a part of a Christ-centered martial arts group. Their website says they are Christian warriors, which scares me a little bit, if you know anything about Christian history. You can, uh, if you don't want to do, do that, you can have a Christ-centered tattoo. You liked that. You go to a Christ-centered tattoo salon where they play Christian music in the background and they put art on you that's Christ-centered. This is a Christ-centered business. But of all of these, the, well, by the way, you can buy a Christ-centered recipe book. <laughs> I don't know if there's more than... Um, grape juice and communion bread in this book. <laughs> well, it's a Christ-centered recipe. You pray over everything before you stir. And this one, for me, was the most interesting. This, this business believes that they are uh, in favor of Christ-centered capitalism. They say, we're here to increase wealth to bring hope to the world. Christ-centered capitalism. And if anybody is listening to us, they would say to us, you people are absolutely incoherent and crazy. Christ-centered, Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused life. What do we mean when we say that? In fact, every time you get a group of people together, like in this institution, like my institution, churches and schools who are founded on Christian principles and you make mission statements, Jesus always makes the short list. It's good to put Jesus in the center of everything. What do we mean when we say that? That's what I'd like to talk about with you this week. The forces, the forces that push on us towards a Jesus-centered life, whatever it is, or that pull us from a Jesus-centered life, whatever we think that this is. If we want to know what a Jesus-centered life is, we open the Bible, and I will tell you this morning, there isn't just one place we could look to understand the question I'm asking. Many places, but at least we have to read Jesus Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this week, that's what we'll do. Reflections from the life of Jesus about what a Jesus-centered life might look like in hopes that we understand the forces which compete for our energies and the equilibrium available to us. When Jesus begins his work as an adult in the world, the Gospel of Luke records a moment where he has his apprentices, his students together, and they're traveling with him to a large group of people Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 17, says this. He, Jesus, went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They'd come to hear Jesus and be healed from their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because of power that was coming from him. 
They listen, but they also want to touch. The Bible says they want to be cured because there's power coming from him. And I've tried to imagine that scene and that power. What does it look like when power radiates from Jesus? What is that? The word is for dynamite, an explosive kind of power radiating from this one they call Jesus. Because of these internal qualities he has, people come close and they not only listen, but they want to touch and they want to be healed. Jesus has this explosive power as he moves around the first century. It is not that Jesus has all of this power, however, that interests me. It's what Jesus does with it. And I submit to us this morning what distinguishes Jesus and God from all superpowers in all time is what they do with the power they're given. The Bible says Jesus uses this power to heal. Some of you have had more time than others to spend with the Bible. You know that this isn't surprising. If you have followed the story of God, Chris just led us in a song, Heaven and Earth are Attempting to Touch. That's been God's objective all along, to be close to people, to heal people, to save, to put the salve, the healing balm on people. It shouldn't surprise us when Jesus begins this way. If we've read about his life, probably his mother, his mother Mary, sang to him, of this history and this longing for one who would come to heal people. In the Gospel of Luke only, listen to these verses. Luke 1, Mary must have sung, his mercy extends. Whose mercy? The mercy of God, the mercy of Jesus. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever and ever. And and just a few months later, Zechariah, his uncle, will sing another song, waiting for Jesus to be born. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He's raised up the horn of salvation, of healing, of wholeness. He's raised it up in this person, Jesus, for the whole house of his servant David. A few months later, the night Jesus is born, we've just come through the Christmas season, and you know that story of the night Jesus is born in the night sky, a lullaby is sung by this angel choir. When in, also in the Gospel of Luke, they sing, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for, for all people. Today, a savior, a healer, a liberator has been born. Glory to God in the highest, and earth on earth peace to all those on whom God's favor rests. But that's not all. In just a few days, when Jesus is eight days old, they take him to the temple to be, to be dedicated. And the priest there, Zechariah, announces this blessing. All flesh will now see healing because of Jesus. When he grows up, the first time he stands up to speak something important in his hometown synagogue, the, the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Luke also, he opens this scroll and he puts his finger on the exact verse he wants to share with people. The scroll of Isaiah, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, to, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a consistent story from the beginning of Jesus's, from his imagined entrance into the world until this text we've read about this morning. Jesus is with the people. The Bible says a power is coming out of him, a power to heal. 
So he went down and he stood with them on a level place, the Bible says. He didn't stand up there. He didn't elevate and go up into the heavens and heal. The Bible says he comes down in the middle of where the people are and he stands on a level place in the middle of their pains, in the middle of their problems. The healing begins. God comes into the world in the form of Jesus, not only to cure, but to care. It's not that Jesus has all this power, it's what Jesus decides to do with all of this power. <coughs> healing, the healing arts, it's what you all now are learning to master. You know you are admired and you will be soon in careers where the world will look at you and you'll be perceived in positions of power. And the competing forces in the world, they don't go away, they don't get less. My father, a graduate of the dental school, my sister, a graduate a, a employee, chair in the pediatric dental department, my husband in the school of medicine, our family has cared greatly about the ministry of healing, and everyone I know who's graduated from this place will tell you, it's not less when we leave here. The, the competing forces are more, the opportunity for disequilibrium is great. So learning the patterns now is helpful. Identifying the competing forces. The power that you'll have as a healthcare provider can be used to heal and also to harm. The power coming from Jesus is always healing power. And I'm testifying to you this morning that that healing power absolutely centers me in my living. It is the center of my equilibrium. Even when days look chaotic. But I will also tell you, you never really know if it's extending the healing or embracing the healing that brings the equilibrium. Because the healing's also for us, too. Her name is Dawn. She's an emergency room nurse in Chicago, and she confesses she's got a lot of demons in her closet. She's a young adult, hasn't been a nurse very long. Her demons include alcoholism, a string of broken relationships, and she struggles with depression. But she functions as a nurse. We have demons, too. We can interchange her list with our own. The point is she is functioning as a nurse. On this particular day, she left church on a Sunday morning. They were singing as she exited the worship center, Lord, make us servants today. And she went to the emergency room, already exhausted, a 12-hour shift in front of her. But the sound of the helicopter and the sirens that let her know it's, it's going to be a brutal day. The emergency room on the weekend is already brutal. She showed up exhausted, but from the moment she entered the door, she realized what a day this is going to be because the charge nurse shouted out to her, Dawn, go lock down room number 15. So she moved to room number 15. Now, when someone shouts out for a lockdown, it means a combative patient or a psychiatric patient. Let me read to you in Dawn's words what she found that day. Dawn says when she got there, there were two security guards, and they're flexing their muscles like a bouncer. They're expecting a drunken brawl when they get into the room. Two masked medics brought in patient N. Patient N is restrained and strapped on the cart. 
He's been in the hallway, and as they moved him down the hallway, the heads turned away in disgust because of the smell accompanying this patient. They tucked him out of sight in room 15. His feet are hanging over the edge of the bed, taped up in a plastic bag. The emergency room doc performs a quick exam, and the medics rattled off all their findings, and patient N laid on the cart and muttered along. The smell was overpowering as the swollen and mold-encrusted feet were uncovered and then covered up again very quickly. Dawn says she took his vitals and she left the room grateful that her part was over until she got back out to the nurse's station and the charge nurse said, please, would you just take patient in because nobody will take him and you, you don't have to do his feet. Just give him a bath. I'll send the security guards. If you'll just give him a bath, we'll, 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 we'll get some aides to do the rest. People were snickering about patient Ann at the nurse's station. The security guards were also poking fun. Dawn says, I agreed to bathe the man. I gathered supplies, and I waited for the security guards to open the hazardous material shower. While waiting with this patient, however, a little of my numbness began to disappear. For the first time, I looked at this man. He was restless. He was mumbling. He was incoherent. He had a scruffy face. His eyes were hidden behind a mane of shoulder-length ratted hair. I wondered what brought him to the emergency room today. I wondered what life he had to return to, or if anyone knew he was missing. No one in the emergency room wanted to look at him because, honestly, no one wanted to have to be the one to touch him, Don said. So, I decided I would look at him. We know if we don't look at him, maybe his broken life will go away or he doesn't really exist, but I couldn't ignore him. Now I had seen him. And so I decided for this one night, the rest of his time in the emergency room, he would be treated like a king. She says the security guards laughed and teased about him, but I began to prepare his shower I set out his soap and his shampoo and towels like this was a five-star hotel. The security guards placed patient N inside the shower. When we moved him from the shower to a throne of warmed blankets and basins, that's where I knelt down and my heart broke, she says, and my stomach turned all at the same time when I picked up his feet, swollen, rotten feet, rough, broken skin, infection. My gloved hands tenderly sponged the brown soap over his wounds, and tears began to stream down my face. I looked up at patient N and into his eyes. For the first time since he'd been in the emergency room, he opened his eyes and looked at me and said, thank you. Dawn goes on to say, I, I don't know who got the healing that night in the emergency room. Patient N or me? Because when I looked at this man, I saw Jesus. When we allow the competing forces 
to be pushed away with the healing power of Jesus. Be on guard. You don't know who's going to get the healing, your patients or you. Amen.